Today, as we start into a new year, as we start into the scriptures in a fresh way, I want to invite us to think about what is at the center of what we care about. What's at the center of what we live for? What's at the center of what we value? To think about that personally, but also to think about that as a, as a church family, as a body, as a community. Sometimes to help us think about what we value, it's helpful to examine the things that we create, right? The way certain structures are organized or built, they, they tell us about what we value or what's important. Let me give you a few examples. For several years, um, I lived in or in the vicinity of the city of Beijing. And if you've ever been to Beijing or if you go there someday on travel, uh, for travel, you'll notice that a map of Beijing is a series of concentric circles. There are these massive highways they've built that encircle the city. There's like the, I don't know how many highways they have now. There's like the fifth ring road, and the fourth ring road, and the third ring road. And as you move further in, you get closer and closer to the center of the city. And as you trace those circles into the center, what's at the very center of that city is a place called Tiananmen Square, which I'm sure you've seen photos of, seen video of. And there in the center of Tiananmen Square is the Great Hall of the People, which is the, the home of the communist government. And what's even more central, just beneath that Great Hall of the People, is the gate called Tiananmen, the Gate of Heavenly Peace, that actually goes back into the, the Ming and Qing dynasties. And it's, it's sort of thought to be the center of that nation, the center of that government, the center of that people. And of course, over the Tiananmen Gate today hangs the photo of, of Mao, Mao Zedong, right? And his principles and his thought and the, the community and the nation that he created. And so that, that city and the way it's laid out communicates kind of an idea about what's central, what's important, what values guide that place and that people and that nation. You might take an example literally closer to home. You might think about how the structure of the houses we live in are, are created, right? And, and every architect knows that what we value gets expressed in, in that layout, in those homes, and even in the rooms that we spend our days and nights in. What do you put at the center of a home? What, what place in your home is most central and, and do most of the people in your family gather in? What do you gather around? Is it a table for eating? Is it a screen for watching Netflix? Is it uh, a piano for, for singing? Is it a bookshelf and a, a room for reading? Right? The, the architecture of our homes expresses value, what's central. And there's a sense that books themselves are structured in a particular way and can communicate what's valued, what's most important. Today we're, we're beginning into a new book together. We're going to be studying the Gospel of Matthew from now all the way up through Easter, about three months away. And as we listen to Matthew, this Galilean tax collector who is turned evangelist, we're going, we're going to listen to him communicate what he believes is most important, what is most valuable. And one of the ways we can get at what Matthew believes about that is by looking at the structure of his gospel, how he's laid that out. 
In the first couple chapters, which we are moving over rather quickly this morning, chapters one and two, are actually things that have been sort of central to our worship in the past month, right? Through the season of Advent. During Advent, we often hear either Matthew chapter one and two or or Luke chapters one, two, and three preached, proclaimed, pageanted, caroled about, testified to. And if we look at Matthew 1 and 2, Matthew begins with what what he says he's concerned most about. He's concerned about the birth or the genesis, literally in Greek, the genesis of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, where he came from, what he's about. And then in the first two chapters, Matthew takes great pains to tell us that the coming of Jesus, the birth of this child, the events of his early childhood and formative years, are deeply connected to God's plans throughout history, throughout Scripture, that there is a fulfilling taking place in this child named Jesus. There's a drawing together particularly of what the prophets had long foretold. And so you, you can see up here on the, the screen a number of different places in those first few chapters where Matthew speaks about what Jesus' coming has fulfilled. Fulfilled, fulfillment, fulfilling. That's a constant refrain at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's telling us it was as if in the coming of this one person that all of history All of time, all of creation, all of culture are are coming to their intended climax. But as we move into chapter 3 this morning together, where we're going to sort of start our study in earnest, what's interesting is, is though Matthew has been getting kind of our anticipation worked up about who this child is and what he's about to do and why he is so central, we get this sort of what I would, would, would sort of consider like an intermission or a, a diversion at the beginning of Matthew 3. We, we take a step back from Jesus' storyline for a moment. And instead, we get introduced to a man named John, John the Baptist. We could think about John's story as maybe a kind of intermission, but maybe a better metaphor is like an opening act. Do you like to go to concerts in the summertime? Right? You've got the big headliner, the person that you've paid to see, but they usually send someone out on stage first right, to warm up the crowd, to build that sense of anticipation, to help you settle into what is about to come. And as strange as it may seem to us, the stage that God sets for this great introduction, this great headliner that's about to come, is the wilderness of Judea. God wants to take us out to the Jordan River. And he gives us the message of John to help us grow in our preparation, in our anticipation for the fulfillment that Jesus is about to bring. And I think in many ways, John comes asking, what's at the center of our lives? What's at the center of our community? What are we making space to welcome in as a people, the deepest places. So let me pray for us as we open up to Matthew 3 together this morning. 
Lord Jesus, we believe that not only Matthew's gospel, but that the entire scriptures themselves, that the lived witness of the church throughout history confesses that you are the center of everything. That all things are being drawn together in you. That you are holding and pulling and redeeming all things under your lordship. Lord, I pray as a church, as we hear this gospel proclamation, as we hear the the challenging and sobering message of John, may it also prepare us. May it make space in us to receive the gospel and good news that you come proclaiming in full. May the words of my mouth as I preach this morning, may the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So with that whole backdrop of Matthew 1 and 2, of Jesus' birth and childhood, his, his going to Egypt and his coming back and settling in Nazareth, with all of that behind us, we come to Matthew 3, where the gospel writer then says this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. I think it's worth asking why all four gospel writers start into the story of Jesus, and then they take a break. They all make space to tell us about the preaching and proclamation of John the baptizer. Why not just stick to Jesus' story. Why do we need John? In some ways, John's kind of eccentric. In some ways, John's message is, is kind of fire and brimstone. Why are the Gospels insistent that we need to hear John first? Well, I think probably for all of us in our life of discipleship, as we seek to be followers of Jesus There's some stuff that has to take place in our lives, some preparation, some some readying, some pre-learning that we have to do before we know what it means, what it takes to set out into the gospel and ministry and obedience of Jesus. Matthew's conviction in these first couple chapters is that that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's going to be the full expression of of scripture and history, of God's plans for his people. But before we get to all of what God is arranging and orchestrating in Jesus, Matthew tells us that that Jesus' plans and God's plans through Jesus involve regular human beings. 
But just because God is going to fulfill all things in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that he's not going to involve and, and invite our participation in that filling. So John comes to tell us that our participation is required in two ways. Look at verses 2 and 3. John says that his message is about repentance and preparation, clearing, returning, restoring. These are the means by which we get ourselves ready for what's going to come after John. Repentance and preparation. How do we practice these two things? Particularly, how do we practice this idea of repentance? One theologian has lamented that the word repentance may be the poorest translation from the New Testament Greek into English out of of any other New Testament word, because the word in English literally means to make sorry again. In our minds, often the idea of repentance has to do with this idea of of feeling sad, maybe feeling shame, feeling a, a guilt upon us. And so, in many cases, we we don't particularly like the idea of repentance. It's it's freighted. It's heavy. And that's not to say that there isn't a a real sort of compunction that often is is connected to real repentance. A godly sorrow that sometimes is is part of this process. But I want you to look at how John actually talks about repentance here. He actually says that repentance is needed so that we can get ready for the coming of a king and the coming of a kingdom. Repentance is hardly something to be sad again about. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Repentance is is part of this anticipation and preparation and welcoming of this incredible new thing God is about to do. The way John describes repentance is is a way of beginning to see ahead, a way of of clearing out space for what God is about to do, what God desires to do in our lives. And and it's a turning of our hearts and our wills to want to join ourselves to that work God desires to do. Maybe a better way to think about that word repentance is to look at the way the word is actually presented in the Greek and also in the original Hebrew. The word in Greek is primarily, it's the idea of a turning around. Shuv is the, the Greek word. Right? A turning from one thing toward the opposite thing. A, a 180, so to speak. And the word in, in Greek conveys this, this concept of, of transformation. Of, of a process of, of, of recalibrating, of reorienting our lives around something entirely different. Repentance, then, is, is moving away from, turning away from what we once looked for to fill us up, what we once placed at the center of our lives, and being radically reoriented, re-centered, re-rooted in this kingdom God is bringing in Jesus Christ kingdom God has come to fulfill in Jesus Christ. 
But in order for that kind of turning, in order for that kind of transforming to take place, there's a, a preparing. There's a, there's a clearing. There's a, there's a decluttering that has to happen in our lives. If you look at verse 3, Matthew summarizes what John has to say by quoting Isaiah 40. And he says, the way that we participate in the fulfilling of God's mission is by turning our lives back onto God's path, God's highway, God's road, this road of return God has made possible. And to make that pathway clear, to get rid of obstructions and obstacles on that road. To get rid of all the other stuff that's filling up our lives so that we can join ourselves to God and his, his plans, his purposes. In some ways, I, I think of repentance as a kind of emptying out of what's not needed, of everything in our lives that isn't from God. And we need to, to sort of empty that space out so that it can be replaced with what is the fullness and filling and fulfillment of Jesus Christ. My kids sometimes watch a show on, on TV called Tiny House Nation. And if, if you've ever watched one of these episodes, it's a reality show where usually it's a, a couple or a family want to move out of a more traditional home and into a tiny house. And so they're designing this new structure and what their life is going to look like and, and all the, the different parts and pieces. But there's always a segment in each episode where they have to go through all their stuff. Right? They have 2,000 or 3,000 square feet of stuff in their old house, and they've got to get rid of all this junk and choose just a few things that are most necessary for them to, to move into this new life, into this new home they're designing and building. John conceives of repentance in a similar way. In order, in order for us to welcoming the, welcome in the fulfilling work of God, the fullness of who Jesus is. There's stuff we need to offload. There's stuff we need to get rid of. There's clutter. There's weight. There's brokenness. And when the crowds come to visit John there at the Jordan, right, the, the invitation he gives them, the way they can clear out their lives and prepare for this thing God is about to do, is through the practice of confession. John invites the crowds to come there to the desert to hear him proclaim that God is about to do something incredible. And in response, the people confess their sins to John and they enter into the waters of, of baptism, the waters of the Jordan. One commentator says that that baptism of John represents both a drowning of and a cleansing from the power of sin. Right? There's this idea that, that in confessing all that they have, have given themselves to that was not fulfilling, right? they're putting that to death. They're seeking for, for the power of sin to be drowned in their lives. But there's also a, a cleansing and a renewing they come up out of those waters to welcome something different. What I think is incredible is that when we come to God in the confession of our need, 
of our limit, of our ignorance, of our, our selfishness, of our pride, of our fear, of our anxiety, when we confess those things to God, He meets us with His mercy. He meets us with, with the power to take those things from us and to cleanse us and to make space in our souls for his kingdom. I wonder if there is a place you desire to invite God's mercy as you start into this new year, God's cleansing. Invite the power of God to hear and know your sin, but to be delivered from it, to leave it behind. That's what the crowds come to John, asking him for help with. But not everyone who comes out to hear John is so eager to welcome this mercy and cleansing and renewing and making space kind of work that John is eager to do. In fact, we see that John has some real opposition there in the desert. Look at verses 7 through 12. But when John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees were also coming to where he was baptizing, this is what he said to them. You, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance? Do not think you could say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones... These river stones. God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, one whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Notice how different John's message is for this group. Right, to the crowds who come, the crowds practicing repentance, practicing confession of sin. John's baptism is one of anticipation and mercy and cleansing. But to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come scrutinizing John's baptism, his message is one of fire. Right, again and again, that word is repeated to them. A fire of God's judgment. How can it be that the, the preparation, the anticipation of God's coming can be such good news for one group of people and unquenchable fire and judgment for another group? I think John says in verses 8 and 9 here that it, it comes down to their attitude around repentance. The crowds come to the Jordan acknowledging what's not working, what's not been fulfilling. 
They come empty looking for something more in God's kingdom. The Pharisees, on the other hand, come full of themselves. Right? So full of themselves, they don't have any space for God to do fulfilling work. To send the fullness of his spirit into them and into their community and into the temple that they, they oversee and worship at. Do they come to the river empty, or do they come full? John warns the Sadducees and the Pharisees that one who comes after him, right, the one that we're, we're waiting to see and waiting to hear about from Matthew's gospel, that one, he says, when he comes, will have far more power than John. Power to gather those that God loves, those that God is showing mercy to, those who are bearing fruit in this coming kingdom, to gather them into himself, but also power to judge and to clear his threshing floor and to declutter the religious establishment from this this self-righteousness. Even John himself Right, who lives with this kind of zealous, ascetic passion. Right? He, he eats locusts and wild honey. He lives and fasts in the desert. He practices the law to the nth degree. Even John says, my righteousness pales into comparison, in comparison to the one who comes. I'm not even worthy to carry the sandals of that one. John says he too is repenting. He too is making ready. He too is asking God for help to be joined the one who will come after him. So I think the Pharisees offer us a, a different picture of, of how we see and our, and our attitudes about repentance can, can take root in us. Do we come to the practice of repentance in an ongoing way, not just sort of one, one time at the beginning of our Christian life? Do we see repentance as this, this cleansing river that we return to again and again to make ourselves ready, to welcome at a deeper level the fulfillment of who Jesus Christ is, to reorient our lives so that we can be ready to follow him where he leads? Is it a gift to us? Or do we see repentance in the way these Pharisees do? As an inconvenience, as something to resist, as a a vulnerability which might expose that which we would prefer to keep hidden. What do we do with the practice of repentance? So we have here, gathered by the Jordan River, we have John and the crowds, hungry, Repentant, confessing sin, entering into the rivers of baptism. And we have the Pharisees gathered with skepticism, with resistance. Then John tells us, John, John the Baptist tells us, Matthew tells us about John at the end of this third chapter, about another person who joins them at the riverside. Let me read the last few verses of chapter 3. It says, then Jesus came. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. 
But John tried to deter him, saying, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We can assume that John had spent years of his life waiting for this moment to come. Preparing, right, calling the people to get ready for this one thing to happen. But it's clear that when that moment comes, even John himself is surprised at how it unfolds. Right? John understood his message to be one of repentance, one of confessing sin, one of confessing emptiness and need for God to restore and to fulfill and to bring his kingdom in a new way. And now as he's there beside the river and the Messiah, the Son of God, comes, Jesus wants to step into those waters of repentance with him. And John is so taken aback, he actually tries to stop Jesus from going into the river. Right? If this is Israel's Messiah, if this is the Redeemer, if this is the, the one God has anointed, why would he need a baptism of repentance? Commentator Dale Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew, says that this moment is the first miracle of Jesus to his thinking. And he says it's the miracle of Jesus' humility. Because the first thing Jesus does is to go with the human race, down deep into the waters of repentance, so that he could meet us there. As we cry out to God in a fresh way, for the drowning of sin, for the cleansing of sin, to welcome in the filling of God's kingdom, Jesus comes and meets us in those waters. But when Jesus enters the waters of John's baptism, something else also takes place. Jesus transforms that baptism. He transforms it from merely being a place where confession is made and, and cleansing takes place to a place in which God's fullness is being released. God's righteousness is being imparted to his people. As Jesus himself says in verse 15, let me do this in order that I might fulfill all righteousness. 
And so that we would know that this is God's righteous son, that the fulfillment of all these things Matthew has spoken about is taking place in this person. Right? A threefold witness is given at that moment. Right? The, the heavens themselves testify to who Jesus is by, by tearing apart and pulling back. The Spirit of God comes physically in a way that we maybe can't even fully visualize, comes streaming down and comes to rest upon Jesus in that moment. And thirdly, the voice of God the Father himself testifies. You are my son, the one whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which we are going to hear unfolded for us in these next three months through Matthew's testimony. That gospel is that we can be joined to Jesus, not only in our repentance, but in his righteousness. That we can be true sons and true daughters in the kingdom God is bringing. as we continue to allow the gospel to prepare our hearts, to renew our hearts, to repent in our hearts, so that we can receive this greater fulfillment of who Jesus the Son has come to be.